Welcome to TNS, the new school at Commonweal, a collaborative learning project exploring nature, culture, and consciousness. Join us now for a conversation with Rachel Naomi Remen and host Michael Lerner with readings from Rachel's new book, The Birthday of the World. Welcome. We're here. I mean, it's so wonderful to be here and not see your faces in the Zoom box. So thanks for coming. The new school is celebrating its 15th anniversary. So this year is 15 years for us. And that's really, I know it's pretty amazing. I feel like it's amazing. And who better to celebrate with than Rachel? It's wonderful to have you back here with us. All right, you guys take it away. Wonderful. Could we all just go into silence for a minute together? That's how we always start. Peace, peace. Peace. Well, welcome to you all. Welcome to this very special New School event with my beloved friend and colleague, Rachel Naomi Remen. Um, I'm Michael Lerner, the co-founder of Commonweal and of the New School, which, as Kira Epstein just told you, is celebrating our 15th anniversary. And Kira, how many podcasts and... We've done 300 wow. uh, uh, <laughs> podcasts cool. and uh, YouTubes um, already. Uh, I've probably done about 150 of them, something like that. Uh, Rachel and I have done many together. And before we begin to talk about Rachel's extraordinary new book, which we're here to hear her read, uh, The Birthday of the World, I want to tell you all a little story about how Rachel and I met. So, um, Commonweal's 46 years old. And about uh, eight years into Commonweal's history, the whole thing crashed. We lost all our funding. Uh, I had to lay off over 40 staff people. Yeah. I had to lay myself off. We kept the business manager and the receptionist uh, I think that's about it. And uh, I was consulting with a eccentric uh, dentist who was thinking of giving some money to University of California, San Francisco. And my mentor, Phil Lee, who was former chancellor of UCSF, thought maybe I could help this dentist figure out what he wanted to do. So uh, Rachel had also been called in on this event. And we met with a few other people at a cafe uh, in San Francisco. And all of us were sitting around talking about what we were going to do. And Rachel and I began to talk. And we continued talking. And we looked around and everybody else had disappeared. (laughs) And so we continued to talk. And I told Rachel that I had this uh, vision of doing retreats for people with cancer. At that point, Rachel was not well-known. And um, so here we were. I was sort of stranded with Commonweal hanging by a thread uh, and unemployed and um, talked to Rachel about this. And I can't remember the whole context of it, but at a certain point, Rachel looked at me and said, well, let's do it. Mm. So that was the beginning of the Commonweal Cancer Help Program which uh, over the last 36 years 
We just finished our 215th week-long retreat. And Oren Slasberg, our executive director, often speaks of the Cancer Health Program as kind of the heart and soul of Commonweal's work. That a great deal of what emerged in our work on health and healing, education and the arts, and environment and justice flowed out of um, 36 years of, um, of the Cancer Health Program. It took us a couple of years to figure it out and get it started. Uh, but from the start, uh, Rachel and I and a group of others, Waz Thomas and other friends and colleagues, just put this together for the first time. And um, it really was a pioneering thing in the United States at that point. And at a certain point, Bill Moyers heard about it, and uh, he uh, sent out his colleague David Grubin mm-hmm. and their partners, mm-hmm. and he ended up filming uh, the Cancer Help Program as the final episode in his uh, extraordinary series, Healing in the Mind, which was a, uh, a profound shift in the whole history of mind-body medicine. Mm -hmm. And he also put out a book called Healing in the Mind, where Rachel and I were interviewed about the Cancer Help Program. Mm -hmm. So that was how it began. Rachel and I did the Cancer Help Program for some time together. And then Rachel had the idea, she is not short of ideas, (laughs) of uh, creating the Institute for the Study of Health and Illness at Commonweal, which was a program initially for physicians, but then extended to others as well, and, um, and created this extraordinary uh, global uh, program for physicians and other health practitioners uh, that is present in how many countries around the world? Well, the healers are six-session uh, experience that medical students get um, well, maybe about two months into their, their, their education. They're brand new freshmen. And we talk to them about uh, medicine as an act of love. And we enable them to experience that in their own way and all of this. And it's now, uh, my goodness, it's in every medical school in America at the moment. Isn't that amazing? And something like 36,000 Medical students, first-year medical students, have taken this in countries all over the world. And um, sometimes people ask me if I have any children. (laughs) And I tell them I have Mm 36,000 children. (laughs) Yes. So so the Healers Art uh, and other programs of uh, the Institute for the Study of Health and Illness really went global. And what I'm particularly proud of is that it is totally transpolitical, which is what I believe Commonweal's best work is. It's active in red states and blue states. It's active in countries around the world who are at war with each other because healing doesn't check your politics at the door. Healing goes to the heart of being human. And I believe that that's the best work that Commonweal does when we just go to the heart of being human, regardless of your politics, regardless of all the other things that divide us, uh, this is at the heart of it. So Rachel is the co-founder of the Cancer Health Program, the founder of the Institute for the Study of Illness, and I will read the biography as it appears in the birthday of the world. (laughs) It says, Dr. Rachel Naomi Remen, or Dr. Rachel as she is known, 
is a pediatrician, professor of family medicine at Wright State University Boonshoff School of Medicine, and clinical professor of family and community medicine at UCSF School of Medicine. In addition, she is the author of the internationally best-selling and beloved Kitchen Table Wisdom and My Grandfather's Blessings. This is her debut book for children. She lives in the San Francisco Bay Area. And I should add that the incredible illustrations for this are done by Rachel Sumter, who's a fine artist and illustrator. And her books include Down Under the Pier and Keeper of the Light, Juliet Fish Nichols Fights the San Francisco Fog, both published by Cameron Kids. And she lives with her family in Washington. I have read this. It is exquisite. I recommend it to all of you. And with that, I give you my beloved friend and colleague, Rachel Naomi Remmer. Well, let me share um, a memory or two also. I was sharing this with Jocelyn as we were driving over the top of the mountain here. And I remember driving, and you probably don't remember where we were, or I don't remember where we were, but it seems to me that we were driving over the top of the mountain as well. And we were driving, you were driving me to Commonwealth for the first time to see it, the mm-hmm. land, right? Mm-hmm. And you had said something like you felt that we should be working together. And I said, sure, you know, we talked about you're doing a retreat for eight people with mm-hmm. cancer and all this. And, um, <laughs> and you said, but first we have to figure out how we are separating, how we're going to end it. And, you know, we're still driving to Commonwealth. I've never seen Commonwealth. I said... <laughs> but we haven't started yet. Yes, but we we need to we need to decide how to end it. And I say, why do we have to decide how to end it? Well, I've just had this really awful experience with somebody, and I I think it's wise for us to talk about how we're going to end our relationship. <laughs> so we <laughs> talked about how we're going to end our relationship, and we worked it all out. <laughs> and you know something. We haven't ended it yet. <laughs> and I don't think we will ever end it. As and a that's a true fact. story, by yeah, the way. Absolutely true story. Yeah. Yeah. So um, forces sort of direct my life. Um, I used to be trying to direct my own life, and that made it hard for these forces. But um, at some point, um, probably when I was about 65, I surrendered. And I want to talk to you about my history as a writer and about this book as well. Um, I, I didn't, I have never gone for a book contract. I don't, I never thought about writing a book at all. And um, I was giving a talk in one of Dean Ornish's uh, uh, <coughs> meetings for people with heart disease. Uh, and there, there were a hundred men in the audience who didn't want to be there. <laughs> and their wives who brought them there. And I was talking to them about perfection and perfectionism and how it damages the heart. And I have a long history of telling stories. And I was humiliated in medical school because I told stories. I was not only one of the only women I told stories. And what's the importance of a story? After all, it only happened to one person. I mean, this is not science, right? And I was humiliated so badly, and it was so important to me to be accepted by the men that I stopped telling stories, except to my patients. 
And then I discovered that there's no such thing as diabetes. Everyone has diabetes in their own way. And everyone has a story. And I continued telling stories in secret, right? But I was talking to a group of patients, so I was telling them stories about perfectionism and the heart and stuff like this. And in the back of the room, there is um, Dean uh, on his laptop like this. And I figure, you know, he's type A. <laughs> he's probably writing a grant back there. <laughs> but he wasn't. He was writing down a couple of my stories, and he sent them to his... He, he had just written this blockbuster, best-selling book that you could reverse heart disease with diet and exercise and communication. I mean, it, it's, an every, it's one of the biggest books published in the last hundred years, Right. So he calls up his book agent, right? And she is famous. She has, uh, she founded something called ICM, which probably every movie actor we've ever seen is represented by ICM. And every really big book person is represented by, he calls up Esther Newberg. And he says, Esther, I'm gonna send you a little story. I, I, she has a lot of these stories. I think she should write a book. And he sends a story to this really tough lady in uh, New York City. And Esther reads the story and cries. And Esther hasn't cried in years. So she calls up one of her publishers and says, you know, Susan, I've got your next book. And when Esther says that, the book is published. So I pick up the telephone. And there's a gravelly voiced woman on the other end, and she says, Rachel, it's Esther, I'm doing your book. I do not know anything about this. And I say, uh, Esther who? And she says, Esther Newberg. And I say, uh, have we met? Right? I mean, it was ridiculous. And I had a book contract with a very big book company. And I didn't write. I, I, I wasn't a writer. What am I going to do with this? Right? So I tried to give it back. And they wouldn't take it. And finally they sent a, a very young woman out as an editor. And she said, okay, what's the book about? And I say, I have no idea. <laughs> right? And she works with this for about 15 minutes and she gets that I really do have no idea. So she tells me how you write. You sit in front of a blank um, computer for two hours a day, same place, same time, and you, you write whatever's on your mind, and then you get up at the end of two hours and go about your life, and you do this every day. This is how you write. So I try this out, and the first three days, I, I can't write. I don't know what to write. And the fourth day, I'm looking at the screen, and I write a story. You know, I say, well, I'm going to tell it a story. That was kind of fun. So I tell it another story. And that was kind of fun, too. So it, I have now six months to give them a manuscript. And I end up giving them a manuscript of 400 little stories, none of them longer than two pages. And I say, I've got all the illustrations for the book. Here they are. I'm about to write the book. I think it's a book on healing. And here are all the case histories for the book. And this young woman reads this and calls me up in two days, and she says to me, stop writing. And I said, why? And she says, um, it's finished. And I'm horrified. What do you mean it's finished? She says, this is it. This is the book. 
I said, 400 little stories? She says, yes. And all the humiliation of not being scientifically accumulated, all of that comes back to me. And I start to, to stammer. And I said to her, I can't, I can't publish a book of little stories like this. And she says, why not? And I have to, I'm crying. And she says, what's the matter? Why can't you publish this book? And I said, it has no footnotes. <laughs> and there's this silence on the other end of the phone. She says to me, Rachel, why does it need footnotes? And I say, if it has no footnotes, it'll have no credibility. And she says, I think you're about to discover, Rachel, what real credibility looks like. Right. And this book happened the same way. A friend of mine, Krista Tippett, who has a, something called um, what? What is it? Just a moment, Rachel. I'm, that book, was that Kitchen Table Wisdom? That was Kitchen Table yeah, Wisdom, just, yes. Just to be clear, that yeah. was Kitchen Table yes, Wisdom. Yes, yes. Um, and so um, Krista has, I did an interview with her in 2005. She loves this interview. So she played it about six times, right? And the last time she played it, about a year ago or so, my editor and my um, um, the, the woman who puts these books together, driving down a one-on-one together, and they hear Krista, and they hear the interview, and there's a story I tell them in the interview. And the, the editor, the head of the children's book company, says, don't you think that's a children's book to her friend sitting in the next seat? And she says, sure. So the phone rings, and a woman <laughs> says to me, um, we think you should write a children's book. And I said, I opened my mouth and said, I can't write a children's book. And she says, and we have a contract for you. <laughs> and I stop and I say, wait a minute, wait a minute. This is orchestrated elsewhere, and I have to at least try. And this is the result of that. And I have always had a dream of writing a children's book. And the story in this book is 300 years old, two to 300 years old. It is told in every synagogue in the world, in every language of the world, on, at the beginning of um, Rosh Hashanah, the, the Jewish New Year, which is, I think, in about three days. Yes. Yeah? Sunday. Sunday. Sunday, yeah. And it's called The Story of the Birthday of the World. And it was taught to, told to me by my grandfather when uh, I was about four. And I'd like to read it to you. Yeah. And this won't take very long. I must say, there was a, there've been all kinds of funny things happening with this book. Um, they called me up and they said, "This is your first book. Uh, we have a very new uh, illustrator that we think should do your book." And I hadn't mind somebody else. And um, I said, oh, or why, why, well, we really think you should consider this. And I said, well, why don't you send me something about her? And I opened uh, the letter, and her name is Rachel, R-A-C-H-E-L-L. And the name on my birth certificate, I was named Rachel after my grandma, but they didn't want to spell it in a Jewish way because there was so much anti-Semitism. So the name on my birth certificate is R-A-C-H-E-L-L-E. We have the same first name, Rochelle. 
Her name is spelled Rochelle. She says it Rachel, and I say it Rachel. So I figured maybe she was the illustrator. And she has put together one of the most magnificent books I have ever seen. For example, there's a picture of the little girl who tells the story. And I think this is, the story was told me by my grandfather. I think this is the way that my grandfather saw me. As a little girl, the light of whose heart came through her fingers, like that. And she has no idea. I mean, she was, we were both sort of on the same, uh, we were telling the same story. She in pictures, me in words. And um, the book is full of magic to me. So let me just start. And I wish I could show you these pictures. And I'll just read to you. And I am, of course, somewhat handicapped by the fact that I can't see very well. So I'm going to read a little slowly. When I was very small, my grandfather was my favorite person in the whole world. He called me by a special name, Nishumala, which means little beloved soul. And he knew many, many, many stories. When I turned four, he gave me a very old story called The Birthday of the World. It goes like this. In the beginning, there was only darkness. And then, you see? And then, a great ray of light ended the darkness, and the world was born, the world of a thousand, thousand things. It was filled with light. Then something happened, and the light of the world broke up into millions and millions of sparks of light. These sparks fell everywhere. They fell into everyone and everything. They fell into all the people, all the girls and boys, the moms and dads, the grandmas and grandpas. They fell into all the animals, dogs and cats and guinea pigs and rabbits. They fell into all the fish in the ocean and all the birds in the sky. They fell into all the plants and all the trees and into all families. And they're still there today, <laughs> hidden in everyone and everything. This is why you were born, and I was born, and everyone was born. We were born because we can each find the spark of light that is hidden in everyone and everything. We can become its friend we can feed it and help it grow bigger and shine more brightly. We can help it grow so bright that it becomes visible once again, one spark at a time. But Grandpa, I asked, if the sparks of light are hidden and we can't see them, how can we find them? Ah, Nishula, said my Grandpa. We can't see them with our eyes. We can only see them with our hearts. 
only your heart can see the spark of light that is hidden in everyone and everything. When we are kind to people or listen to them or believe in them or love them or help them to realize their deepest dreams, we help their spark grow bigger and brighter until it shines out and fills up the world again, one spark at a time. And when it does, your own spark grows bigger and shines brighter and brighter. So the world is not broken, Grandpa. The world is not broken. The light is still there. My grandfather smiled fondly at me. Yes, Nishumala. The light is hidden, but the light is still there. It will always be there. And that makes all the difference. And then they did this. This is a story of the birthday of the world, and it was given to me, and now I give it to you. It's not just my story, it's your story too. One spark at a time, we can change the world back to the way it was at the beginning, whole and filled with light. And they did this radical thing. They allowed me to write an author's note. And it should be right here. And throughout this, the little girl wears this little red hat, this little knit hat, right? And they put it with the author's note. The little hat is at the top of the page. <laughs> Love it. Um, and here's the author's note. Some stories are so timeless and true that they've been passed from hand to hand, unchanged from generation to generation. The birthday of the world is such a story. My grandfather, a mystic and a magnificent storyteller, and by the way, he was also an Orthodox rabbi, right? Um, told me the story of the birthday of the world when I was four years old. This book is my retelling of his gift. Just as my grandfather gave it to me, I now give it to you. Storytelling is one of the oldest and most powerful ways of making change. A good story gives us new ways of seeing and empowers us to change not only ourselves, but the world around us. I think that this story is a perfect story for our time. At this time in the history of things, it would be easy to be overwhelmed by despair and blinded by judgment, so paralyzed by fear that we feel powerless to make a difference. But we are all enough just as we are to make a difference. You are enough just as you are to heal the world. The birthday of the world is about healing the world one heart at a time. It's about seeing with your heart. If you see with your heart, you can heal the world. How do you see with your heart? Seeing with the heart is not something we're taught. It's a capacity we're born with. It's something we remember. But sometimes we forget how to see with our hearts as we get older. Like our hearts, like our eyes, the heart really is an organ of vision, a way of seeing. 
when you look at everyone and everything with your heart, you see things you would not see if you only looked with your eyes. It's like the difference between seeing things in black and white and seeing them in color. When you remember and begin to see with your heart, the world fills with color again. You see the light that is hidden in everyone and everything. When you see with your heart, you notice things you've never noticed before. You can see below the surface of things, the appearances of things, and discover extraordinary things in ordinary people. When you see with your heart, you see what is hidden. You see the beginnings of things, the seeds that will one day become a mighty forest. When you see an acorn with your heart, you know that you're holding not a little woody thing, but a great tree in the palm of your hand. To see with the heart is to see the future. I see the light in you, dear reader. You are enough, just as you are, to heal the world. With love, from Dr. Rachel. Mm. Let's just go into quiet for a moment. You're listening to a TNS conversation with Rachel Naomi Remen and host Michael Lerner. Peace, peace. Thank you, Rachel. Would you like to take some questions now, or would you like to read some poetry first? A couple of poems, yeah? Yes. Yeah. And, you know, the thing about the, the book is um, the pictures. <laughs> the pictures are absolutely amazing. By the way, I showed the pictures as oh, you read. Oh, so, yeah. and they're full of all kinds of things. Like everything, the birds and the flowers are bigger than the people. There are lots of little things that she's, she incorporates in there. She's quite quite good at this. I've never met her. I look forward to meeting her. And I hope she's going to do my next book. That would be And lovely. you have another children's book on the way. I, I've submitted it and we'll see what they say about it. Do you it. just want to say what it's going to be about? No, because no? I'm not quite All sure right. yet. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. In fact, you have plans for three children's books. Isn't that mm-hmm. true? Don't you have ch- plans for three children's books? I, I never have any plans. Oh, okay. I just sort of, it says, here, I'll do it. You know? I, I heard a rumor that you had a plan for three. I, I hope I live long enough to, to do three. I really do. So this is a, a poem that has always meant a lot to me. As a person who was always a kind of a misfit, Yeah. I don't think I ever fitted in anywhere until I came to Commonwealth. Um, And it's written by a woman who I think of as a really wonderful poet, and she's never allowed her books to be published because they're not good enough. Yeah. And this is called, this is about all of us, I think. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Loving the Odd Child. And this book and Kitchen Table Wisdom and My Grandfather's Blessings are the outcome of loving the odd child. Yeah. Every child needs socks and sandwiches. 
their hair combed, and yes, time to play and people to love. The everyday child needs constant care from you, so keep her warm and kindly sheltered and nourished and held. But it's caring for the odd one that makes us whole again. After long confusion and blundering and wishing she was normal, love that little odd inner child and you will flower in unexpected ways, veering off the path that others gave you to carve new and tender territory in the mysterious dark wood. Give that little odd child what she needs, a softer lamplight, all day at the zoo, art supplies for breakfast, and an early exit from the loud party. Maybe she wants things you think are strange, but just believe in her. Let her hold those tiny tree frogs. Let her climb down off your lap to gather strange objects, her weird collections, her need for books, her fear of people-crushing plants, her awkward dislike of your friends, her terribly low pain threshold. Gather each of these up in turn and kiss them, and then put them down in front of her, loved. This is the new path, taking you away from normal and towards yourself towards the life you deeply long for, towards the odd work, the odd lover, the odd house. You were afraid if you gave in to her, there would be no end to it. And that is true, for the odd child is a wild and tempting shamaness, who given an inch will rise up dancing and gather you into her arms and sing her throaty off-key melodies as she wends her way through the woods and steps into her odd place in the bright and peopled world. There she will shift the balance in some small and significant way that only she can understand. Having changed you so completely into yourself, that you are unafraid to reinvent the world. Yeah. Beautiful. Yeah. So any thoughts or comments? I think that, um, I think that there is so much despair in this world and I think the despair has to do with um, feeling helpless. Yeah, yeah. These are very, very important times to be alive and very difficult times, too. Yeah. Any thoughts or comments people have? Stories, inner children, anything like this? Anything at all? Yeah. Anyone have any questions? Ian, yes. Yeah, I'd like to hear about an experience that you had with your grandfather. Just an event or something, some way that he was with you? Oh, um, he came every Sunday. And um, he visited me. And we sat in the living room and talked. 
And he taught me things. And uh, you have to know that my parents were um, young socialists. Uh, the religion was the opiate of the masses. <laughs> and I, um, the, my only contact with um, my, my religion, which is Judaism, was with my grandfather. Um, and he had been told not to talk to me about religion. So he told me these stories as if they just happened to people. <laughs> and we talked about all these things. And he showed me things like lighting the menorah in the dark uh, and all, the, all these things. And then he died when I was seven. And uh, my family is a family of brilliant people. Nurses, doctors, deans of medical schools, you know, professors of nursing, all sorts of things. And um, I was a mystical little girl. And at seven, that all ended. And I started trying to become like the rest of the family. Yeah. But the story is that many times he would tell me something like, uh, why do we say lachayim when we drink? He'd given me a little silver goblet with a bow engraved on it from Russia. It had been very, very old. And he had his great ceremonial goblet. He'd pour wine into our goblets and we'd drink and we'd say, L'chaim. And this meant, of course, to life. And I said to him, you know, why, why do we say that? Uh, is, it, is it good life, happy life? And he said, no, it's all life. All life is a blessing. The opportunity to live a life is a blessing. And I, I mean, these kinds of things, and I thought this was just his ideas. And he imparted with, to me in the form of story so much that I have lived by all the rest of my life. And then he was gone. And um, there's a very funny story about this too. Um, my, my mother knew he was, I was very close to him. Uh, he was the only adult that I was very close to at all. Um, my parents were of the school of what happened to the other two points when you brought home a 98. And um, she went to a child psychiatrist to find out how to deal with me because I'd been so close to my grandfather and he had died. And the psychiatrist said to her, well, why don't you just wait till she talks about him? She'll say something about him. So, and then you can just f take it from there, right? So she waited, and two months went by, and I didn't say a word. And then finally, she, she couldn't take it anymore. And she said, um, uh, honey, you know, um, it's really been hard uh, um, since grandfather died. Um, how, how are you? I mean, how do you feel about grandfather dying? And I say, oh, I say, um, uh, it's much better now. And she says to me, what do you mean? And I say to her, I can take him to school with me now. And I talked to him for years afterwards. And he had told me I might be going somewhere and I can't come back. But if you listen in your heart, you can hear me. Yeah. Other questions, thoughts? I have a bunch, but one. <laughs> Jeff, so. Rachel, um, 
Would you be willing, you have an extraordinary birth story. Would you be willing to tell your birth story? I don't know what you mean by my birth story. Well, that when you were born, right, um, they didn't expect you to live, No, right? I was very little. <laughs> and you were put in a tray on the side. Mm-hmm. And then somebody discovered that you they were, were alive. breathing, yeah. Right. And that's how it all began, Yeah. right? And they put me into an incubator where I was untouched by human hands for a long time. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And that's how you came into the world. And the story that I know about that is, from my grandfather's point of view, my mother um, took my grand—this was her 10th pregnancy, her only living child who was barely alive. Mm-hmm. And um, she took my grandfather to see me through the door, the, the glass wall that was mm-hmm. around the intensive care unit for, for little children. And um, he came, and he was dressed as an Orthodox rabbi, in a, as always, in a black um, overcoat and a, a very little round black hat and uh, black um, trousers and um, the long beard, of course. And he looked at me through the glass as I was lying there in my own glass box. I must... I was so small that my his wife's wedding ring could be slipped up my arm all the way to my armpit and down. I was very, very, very small. And he looked at me, and he didn't say anything. And then after a while, my, grand, my, my mother, who was a, a public health nurse at the time, um, wanted to say something to encourage him that, you know, even he, she thought he was horrified. That, that I was so small. And he started to say something under his breath. And he said, um, and then she said, well, wh- what are you saying? And he says, blessed art thou, our Lord, our God, King of the universe, who has strengthened us and comforted us and brought us whole to this moment. This was his first meeting with me as his his, his grandchild. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Rachel, how old were you when you were diagnosed with Crohn's disease? Fifteen. Fifteen mm-hmm. or ju- probably just about sixteen. And I was told, um, because, and this was, I, I remember this. For, I, went, I was in a coma for a long time. Um, and I was at Mount Sinai Hospital in New York. And I remember when I came out of the coma, um, there was a meeting, and these, these doctors came. They were all wearing white coats, and my parents were there, and they told us the truth, that I had an incurable disease, that you couldn't operate on this disease because it kept recurring. And that I could, um, I could expect to be dead by the time I was 40. And I believed that. I mean, that was science speaking. <laughs> that was science speaking. And I will be 85 in February, God willing. That's what my grandfather used to say. Um, if he called him into dinner, dinner in five minutes, Grandpa, he would say, God willing. <laughs> yeah. 
Yeah. Do you remember your poem about the number of surgeries you've had and so forth? Is that one you know by heart? I don't know any of my poems by heart. Well, just <laughs> how, uh, roughly how many surgeries have you undergone? Um, I've had a lot of major surgeries, um, nine, I think, in, in total, mm. and one very recent. Mm. Yeah. And when you went to medical school, uh, it was extremely unusual for women to be accepted to medical school. Well, um, this was Cornell in New York City, and the B'nai B'rith Anti-Defamation List um, had taken them to court because they, their, their policies of um, hiring people and admitting people were anti-Semitic. So they, the court ordered them to <laughs> admit more Jewish people into the class. And at that time, the class was pretty much all male, with one other exception. So I applied, and uh, they admitted me because I covered, they could do that with one person. <laughs> they could ab admit a Jewish person and also, you know, a woman. And they didn't have to waste another um, place in the class that could be given to a man, you know, like mm. this, like this. And I, if I remember correctly, you wanted to be a surgeon, but they told you you couldn't do that, and you had to go into pediatrics, right? Well, uh, it worked like this. At the end of the, your, your time, just about six months before, maybe a little bit before, um, you apply to medical school, uh, to um, um, residency program, training programs. You're at the end of your medical school training. And uh, they've been evaluating you. F f I mean, day and night, they've been evaluating you for four years, and it's all in, this, in your record. All, everyone has commented on their relationships with you and what they've observed about you. And um, the way that they did this with our class is um, they set up a table with the head of the Department of Surgery, the head of the Department of OBGYN, the head of the Department of Internal Medicine, head of the Department of Pediatrics, the dean of the school. They're all sitting on one side like the Last Supper at, at the table. And one by one, the students came in and talked about what they would like to be able to do and where they'd like to go. And these people were going to take all this data that they had on you and write a single letter that would support your um, application. And I am, by that time, the only woman in the class, right? So I walk in and I sit down and they ask me what I want to do. And I, I tell them what I, I've always wanted to do. I want to be a surgeon, right? And the head of the Department of Surgery, who had a southern accent, he said in that drawl that seems always so threatening to me, that's absurd. <laughs> he said, there isn't a surgical training program in the country that would take you. And this was probably true at the time. And this is 19, oh my. 58, 62, 1962, yeah. And I say, well, you know, maybe I could be an OBGYN. You know, I could do gynecological surgery. We're working with women. And the head of the department of, of OBGYN says, what kind of a woman would go to another woman if they were in this kind of a health crisis? 
<laughs> if they needed surgery, you would you would not be able to to you would never get an appointment, and you'd never be able. You've got to do something realistic. And I said, like what? And the pediatrician, the head of the department of pediatrics, says, "You need to be taking care of children, honey." So I became pediatrician. And you ended up running a pediatric clinic at Stanford. And while you were at Stanford, you received a strange invitation from a place called Esalen. Yes, that you never knew heard nothing of it. about. Never knew nothing and about. Tell us about the invitation and why you chose to accept it. I don't know about you, but I am always doing the right things for the wrong reasons. <laughs> I mean, whatever is up there has figured out that if it shows me what the real thing is, I will have something to say about that. So it shows me that it's leading me towards something that I really want. And it lies to me. <laughs> and this is essentially what happened. Um, uh, I'm sitting at my desk, and the office, my opposite number, I'm running the pediatric clinics at Stanford, right? And I'm, I, I'm, there's nobody on the faculty at this level, right? And my name's on the door, and, you know, I'm making it. I'm really making it. I'm, I'm doing what I was born to do. Oh, my God, I can't even believe it. But at any rate... Um, so um, uh, my opposite number comes up. He runs the, the, the medical clinics, and I'm running the pediatric clinics. And he puts a bunch of brightly colored mimeographed papers down in front of me. And, you know, that's what we did. We mimeographed things, right? And I, I look at this, and I said, what's this? He says, this is this strange thing. I, I'm going to go do it, and I think you should come with me and do it. And I said, well, what is it? He says, well, there's this place called Esalen Institute. Have you heard of it? And I said, no. <laughs> and it was the start of, of the world as we think of it today. You know, It was two hours south of us. I'd never heard of this. All the great thinkers, and, and just amazing. Never heard of it. I said, okay, well, what, what is it? And he talks to me about this. And I, of course, was a philosophy major in, in college. I almost didn't get into medical school because my major was irrelevant. You know, ethics, philosophy, irrelevant for a doctor, yeah. Um, and so, you know, I, he starts to describe this to me. And, and they're doing a free thing. They're going to take people down there for a weekend, a month. It's on a cliff at the edge of the ocean. It's just beautiful there. And, and we, we, they'll, they'll, they'll put us up for a weekend, a month, for two years. And we get to discuss whether or not healing has anything to do with medicine. And I say to myself, how could they think that wound healing has nothing to do with medicine? Because healing, as we understand it, didn't exist. It came out of the think tank that was Esalen. And I say, tell me more. And he says, oh, it's kind of, they're kind of free-living people. They, you know, sometimes they're sunbathing in the nude or they're bathing in the pools in the nude. And, you know, it seems like it's a lot of fun, Rachel. Come with me. <laughs> and I had just broken up with my boyfriend of three years, right? And as he's describing the scene with the men and the... And I say to myself, wow, 
this is the wonderful way to meet men. I'm going. <laughs> and I didn't meet men there. What I meant was the whole of my future. And after two years at Esalen, in the company of a group of really remarkable doctors, um, I went back and they promoted me, and the next day I quit. And I ended up with this guy. <laughs> and do you mind me continuing these questions? Anything right. you want. Because I think this is really valuable. So one of the things that you met at Esalen was a friend, a life friend, Suki Miller, and the whole... Uh, field of psychosynthesis, the work of Roberto Essa Jolie. Yeah. Uh, tell us um, what you found in the field of... Uh, please explain what psychosynthesis is, how you came to study <laughs> with Essa Jolie, and what that experience was like. Well, you know, therapy in those days was of two sorts. Jungian, uh, which was seen as quite strange, and uh, Freudian. Mm. Right. And um, as a Julie and a group of, of uh, European um, therapists started putting together therapy in the way we know it, that um, it's an evoking of wholeness and there's inner mystery and there's guidance and direction and imagery and all this sort of thing. And... Um, I was exposed to that there, and I realized I was dealing with the reason I had a practice at all. I was practicing on a houseboat in Sausalito, and the reason I had a practice at all is that I wanted to talk to the people that nobody wanted to talk to. And so when I first was set up on this houseboat, I was given a big storage closet, which I turned into a little consulting office with two chairs in it. Um, and um, I didn't know how to get patients. So I decided I would go around and talk to the doctors in the, the community, which was uh, Mill Valley and uh, neighborhood community, and tell them that if they had cancer patients that were incurable or they felt they'd gotten everything that they'd got supposed to be, there was nothing more to be done, that um, I would be willing to sit with them and listen to them and uh, do therapy with them and, and with their um, um, families, right? And in two weeks, my practice was full of people that nobody wanted to talk to because there was no way to help them, right? And uh, that's how this whole thing started on the, on the houseboat with the cats and the dogs and the, the white birds and all the, right in the middle of the bay, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah, and then that's, that's where we, I, I was doing that when we met. That's right. Yeah. So I just wanted you all to have a sense of who Rachel is, <laughs> uh, how she came to write this extraordinary children's book the birthday of the world, uh, which follows her international bestsellers translated into many, many languages, Kitchen Table Wisdom and My Grandfather's Blessings. And, um, you know, Rachel, we're not finished yet. No, I don't think we are. Yeah. 
Which I think is quite wonderful, it is. Michael. We still haven't needed to figure out how to say goodbye. No, I don't think we're <laughs> going to ever have to say goodbye. <laughs> right. Any uh, other questions? Yes, Steve. Uh, first, thank you for writing the book. It's beautiful. It's oh, really great. I, I loved hearing that and hearing it read in particular. So um, I just want to tell you, I mean, it's, I think back. So I quoted you to freshman medical students just last week. UCSF. So the class is now more than half women, has been for a long time. That's one thing. But they're very young, you know, and they keep getting younger for some reason every year. Um, but I helped teach, a, you know, a street medicine class with Dave Smith, who founded the, the hate clinic and so forth. And we walked them around. But in the introductions, I asked them a question that I learned from you long ago. And I don't remember. It was probably 15 years ago, at least. I don't even remember what the forum was. But you ask the question, most people who go into some sort of activism, healing, have some incident in their childhood, somewhere between 5, 10, something like that, that is key, that sets you at least on a path to some degree. Mm -hmm. And so I use that with the freshmen. Oh, neat. And I ask yeah. them that just, to, you know, as a question, just, you know, if you think of that. And a lot of time they can't think of it yet, but they have to think about it, you know. Mm -hmm. And that's what happened with me. I actually wrote mine up after your thing long ago. And then hearing you talk today, introducing this, I'm wondering what yours might have been. It, I mean, I'm, in a way, you were talking about your grandfather, all those discussions, but then he died at seven. You he were died you were when seven. I was seven. Yeah, yes. that's very young, you know, to have yeah. had that. So I'm just yeah. wondering, do you remember what your signature experience might have been at that time? I don't, I can't remember it like that, but I want to just talk about the, the exercise that you're talking about. It's part of the healer's art, the, the, the class, you know? And, and what it is, is we, we present medicine to them as a calling, which is the fact that you're born with a set of values that you never acquired. They're, they're innate. And that you live them out through the work that you do. And when you do that, that work is calling. It's very mysterious. And we often separate ourselves. I'm a surgeon, you're an internist, uh, you know, it's like this. But the bottom line is that these are just cognitive details. We're all here because something in us wants to respond to the suffering in the world. And we're a single community of service. It doesn't matter how we do it. It's what we're doing. You're listening to a TNS Conversation with Rachel Naomi Remen and host Michael Lerner. And then I, and I do a thing with them. I say, how old were you when you first realized that the needs of a living thing mattered to you? How many people were between 10 of 50, excuse me, 20 and 25? No one raises their hands. How many people were between 15 and 20? When you first realized the needs of a living thing mattered to you, an ant, an insect, a plant, um, an animal, or even a person, how old were you? You know, um, 10 to 15, nobody raises their hands. And then you say under 10, and the entire class will raise their hands, including the professors who happen to be teaching the course with you, right? And then you ask them for the stories. 
And I collect these stories because they are so amazing. People from the other schools will send me, that are teaching the healers, I send me the stories. And I just share one with you because I love it so much. This was told by a young man. Rachel, you're playing with your mic. (laughs) This was told by a young man. And um, he said uh, it happened when he was very small. He was living in San Francisco in one of the Victorian houses. And there was a bathtub in in the bathroom. It had feet, you know, like a a lion. (laughs) And he was so thrilled with this bathtub. He was sure at night when no one was looking, it would run around the house on these lion feet. And so he would be bathed every day. And he would be being washed. And um, at the end of the bath, uh, his mother would pull the plug, you know, the the rubber plug out of the old drain. The bathtub was 100 years old. And uh, stand him up, and then she'd turn around, and she'd get the towel, and she'd put it on her lap, and she'd take him out of the tub and dry him. And we've all, you know, done this if we've bathed little children, right? And one day when he was uh, standing there waiting for her to get the towel, um, he inadvertently stepped on the drain. And the edges of the drain were 100 years old. They're very sharp, and they cut his foot. And he, it hurt. And he started to cry, and there was blood in the water, and his mom got terribly upset. And she took him out and held onto his foot and said, never, ever, ever step on the drain again. And also every day after that, when she stood him up to get the towel, he would look down to where's the drain because he didn't want to step on it anymore. And one day he was looking down and uh, to find out where the drain was, and uh, he saw for the first time that the water um, was circling the drain, you know? And the edges of the drain were really sharp, and he was worried that the edges were going to hurt the water that was going around the drain. So every day um, after that, when she stood him up, he would take his washcloth and drop it over the drain so it wouldn't, it, the water wouldn't be hurt going down the drain. Right. I said, how old were you? He says, not three, I don't think, much a little younger than three. I said, so you used to use a washcloth to to deal with the pain in the world? And he said, yes. And I said, what are you planning to use now? He says, he started to laugh. He said, a scalpel. (laughs) (laughs) I want to be a surgeon. I'm going to use a scalpel, right? And you get these wonderful stories from childhood. My own thing is, I was the only child of elderly parents, and I was a miracle. I was my mother's 10th pregnancy, her only living child. I had 130 dolls, and each one of these dolls had to be covered up at night, kissed goodnight, told not to be afraid of the dark, every single one before I would get into bed. Yes, and I'm a pediatrician. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. So there's, there's these lovely, lovely stories, and then we get them to write a Hippocratic Oath, which is an interesting thing to do with these young people. Um, and there's one, there are many of them. I, they, I collect these also from all over the country. Um, 
this guy was a football player, he a big guy. And we're writing, we, there's a little formula we use to write our, our own Hippocratic Oath, our own commitment to this work, right? But he's not writing. He's leaning against the wall like this, and he's got his eyes closed. And I'm sure, you know, he's doing something like going over the insertion of the cranial nerves in his mind, you know, for the next test or whatever it is. And halfway through, he comes off the wall, and he says, I wrote something in my mind, and I'd like to say it out loud, because everybody else is reading what they wrote on the piece of paper. And he says, um, may you find in me the mother of the world. May my hands be a mother's hands, my heart be a mother's heart. May my response to your suffering be a mother's response to your suffering. May I sit with you in the dark as a mother sits in the dark. May you know through our relationship that there is something in this world that can be trusted. And these are the, the, the young medical students. It's who they are. And we have been eradicating that in them in every medical school in the country. And fortunately, uh, they fight back. Mm. Yeah. I love that you're doing that with the students. I th I'm sure they were really, really intrigued by that. Yeah. Well, it's very fun and it's very relevant because we actually walk through the hate and there are people in the street. Oh, my goodness. I what a... to the original clinic from 1967. Uh, what a, what a wonderful thing to do with them. Oh, my goodness. Yeah. Any other questions, reflections? Yes. Rachel, um, I wonder if you've um, heard of or experienced anything similar to this kind of program for physicians for nurses. I think nurses are a little different in that they come into this with big open hearts and and this deep desire to care, down. and yeah. it gets shut down. Yeah. And um, I've been doing a lot of work with Dr. Jean Watson and others around, you know, kind of trying to address this. But I wonder if you, if you know of anybody or any resources that are trying to address the beautiful work you've done for doctors on the nursing side. We're so well, glad you asked. <laughs> glad you asked. I have uh, an institute that I founded here. It's now called RISHI, the Remen Institute for the Study of Health and Illness. And we train people to teach these kinds of courses that I've just been talking about. And we train big groups of nurses and doctors and uh, various uh, veterinarians. We're in every veterinary medical school in the country. <laughs> yeah. So if you, afterwards, I, I'll give you a, a contact for that. Thank you. Yeah. Oh, yeah. And we, we don't believe in training people by specialty. We train them by intent. Mm -hmm. So our groups are, are groups of people who, who are the family of this kind of work. Yeah, nurses and doctors together and all. Yeah, yeah. Other and this is happening in Ohio at the time. Mm -hmm. uh, Ohio, um, uh, Dayton, Ohio. Other questions? Well, Rachel, uh, I remember once somebody asked you to try to describe Commonweal. <laughs> and 
the line I heard, I didn't hear it directly from you, but it was from a reliable source. You looked at the person and said, you have to understand, Commonweal is a very yin organization. And I think that's true. Uh, the power of the feminine yeah. is very strong in our community. Yeah. And um, Rachel has been really at the heart of that Kuan Yin quality of um, the feminine in all of us, uh, mm-hmm. women and men. Mm-hmm. And, you know, Rachel, it's, it's simply true that if we hadn't met when I was uh, deeply underemployed and, and uh, <laughs> at that cafe and hadn't sat there and talked, I don't think my vision of a uh, healing program for cancer patients would ever have come into being. Oh, Michael, what a wonderful yeah. thing to yeah. say. Thank you. But I don't believe it. <laughs> well, what matters is that I believe it deeply. <laughs> and no, I, I really don't believe it would have come into being because um, it took both of us. And one of the things you often say is that the central insight of the Cancer Help Program has been that healing happens in community. Yeah. Yeah. And since we just yeah. finished our 215th retreat, and Arlene Alsman, who is right back there, who is the director of the Commonwealth Cancer Help Program, now carries on what uh, Rachel helped us start 215 retreats later. Um, oh so Arlene, deepest gratitude to you for all of this. So thank you all for coming. Uh, we had trouble getting many copies of this, but we have a few. And so if any of you would like to get signed copies, uh, we have, I think Rachel would be willing to sign some. Did they expect us to sell these? <laughs> oh, yeah. They do. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. And also just to say to you all, the new school depends on the generosity of all of you. Yeah. So... We hope you'll get one of these books and consider contributing to the new school so we can keep doing this work. So thank you all for coming. Thank you, Michael. Thank Great you. joy. Come back. You've been listening to a TNS conversation with Rachel Naomi Remen and host Michael Lerner. Thank you for listening to TNS, the new school at Commonweal. The New School at Commonweal is directed by Michael Lerner. Our program coordinator is Kara Epstein. Our audio producer is Ken Adams. Our theme music was performed by Debbie Daly. Visit us online at tns.commonweal.org. That's tns.commonweal.org. Commonweal is spelled C-O-M-M-O-N-W-E-A-L. You can also find us on SoundCloud, iTunes, Facebook, YouTube, Vimeo, and Amazon Music. Thanks for listening. Water can heal my body, water can heal my soul.